0: Section 5 of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I once dined at Mr. Stone's at Hackney with Fox, Sheridan, Tellerand, Madame de Genlis, Pamela, and some other celebrated persons of the time. A natural son of Fox, a dumb boy, who was the very image of his father, and who died a few years later when about the age of fifteen was also there, having come for the occasion from Braidwood's Academy. To him, Fox almost entirely confined his attention, conversing with him by the fingers, and their eyes glistened as they looked at each other. Talleyrand remarked to me how strange it was to dine in company with the first orator in Europe and only see him talk with his fingers. That day I offended Madame de Genlis by praising the Comte Moreau of Monantel, with whom she had quarrelled violently. At a dinner party where I was, Fox met Aiken. I am greatly pleased with your miscellaneous pieces, Mr. Aiken, said Fox, alluding to the volume written partly by Aiken and partly by his sister, Mrs. Barbold. Aiken bowed. I particularly admire, continued Fox, your essay against inconsistency in our expectations. That, replied Aiken, is my sister's. I like much, resumed Fox, your essay on monastic institutions. That, answered Aiken, is also my sister's. Fox thought it best to say no more about the book. At another of Smith's dinners, the conversation turned on Wilberforce when somebody put the query if Wilberforce were compelled to desert either the cause of the slaves or the party of Mr. Pitt, to which would he adhere? Oh, said Fox, he would be for Barabbas. But that was said by Fox merely as a joke, for he greatly respected Pitt. And I remember that on another occasion at Smith's, when Tierney, etc., endeavoured to persuade Fox that Pitt was not uttering his real sentiments about the abolition of the slave trade, he would not be so persuaded. Pitt, too, had the highest respect for Fox. One night after Fox had been speaking, a noble lord coming out of the house with Pitt began to abuse Fox's speech. Don't disparage it, said Pitt. Nobody could have made it but himself. Fox used to declare of himself that he was, quote, a most painstaking person. When he came into office finding that his handwriting was very bad, he took lessons to improve it. He one day pronounced himself to be a bad carver, and when Mrs. Fox confirmed it, he said, Yes, my dear, I thought you'd agree with me. I saw Linardi make the first ascent in a balloon which had been witnessed in England. It was from the artillery ground. Fox was there with his brother, General F. The crowd was immense. Fox, happening to put his hand down to his watch, found another hand upon it, which he immediately seized. My friend, said he to the owner of the strange hand, you have chosen an occupation which will be your ruin at last. Oh, Mr. Fox, was the reply, forgive me and let me go. I have been driven to this course by necessity alone. My wife and children are starving at home. Fox, always tender-hearted, slipped a guinea into the hand and then released it. On the conclusion of the show, Fox was proceeding to look what o'clock it was. Good God, cried he, my watch is gone. Yes, answered General F., I know it is. I saw your friend take it. Saw him take it. And you made no attempt to stop him? Really, you and he appeared to be on such good terms with each other that I did not choose to interfere. I was walking through the Louvre with Fox when he all but cut Macintosh, passing him with a nod and a how do you do? and he gave me to understand that he had done so because he was angry at Mackintosh for having accepted a place in India from the Tories. Fitzpatrick, however, told me the real cause of Fox's anger, and it was this. Mrs. Mackintosh had not called upon Mrs. Fox, whom Fox had recently acknowledged as his wife. Such slight things sometimes influence the conduct of great men, Most unfortunately, one morning during breakfast at St Anne's Hill, I repeated and praised Goldsmith's song When Lovely Woman Stoops to Folly, etc., quite forgetting that it must necessarily hurt the feelings of Mrs Fox. She seemed a good deal discomposed by it. Fox merely remarked, Some people write damned nonsense. When Bonaparte said to Fox he was convinced that Wyndham was implicated in the contrivance of the infernal machine, Fox warmly repelled such an aspersion on Wyndham's character, assuring the First Consul that no Englishman would degrade himself by being concerned in so vile a business. I told this to Wyndham, who answered very coldly, Well, I should have said the same of him under similar circumstances. I have heard Wyndham speak very disrespectfully of Fox in the house after their political quarrel. Fox said that Sir Joshua Reynolds never enjoyed Richmond, footnote where Reynolds had a villa, that he used to say the human face was his landscape. Fox did not admire Sir Joshua's pictures in the grand style. He greatly preferred those of a playful character. He did not like much even the Ugolino, but he thought the boys in the Nativity were charming. Once at Paris, talking to Fox about Lucio's pictures, I said I doubted if any artist had ever excelled Lucio in painting white garments. Fox replied that he thought Andreasaki Sacchi superior to Lucieux in this respect. I mention this only to show that Fox was not only fond of painting, but he had given minute attention to it. He was an eager chess player. I've heard him say on coming down to breakfast that he had not been able to sleep for thinking about some particular move. While young Betty was in all his glory, I went with Fox and Mrs. Fox after dining with them in Arlington Street to see him act Hamlet, and during the play scene Fox, to my infinite surprise, said, This is finer than Garrick. How wise it was in Kemble and Mrs. Siddons, quietly to withdraw from the stage during the Betty furor, and then as quietly to return to it, as if nothing unusual had occurred. Fox said that Barry's Romeo was superior to Garrick's. If I had a son, observed Fox, I should insist on his frequently writing English verses, whether he had a taste for poetry or not, because that sort of composition forces one to consider very carefully the exact meanings of words. I introduced Wordsworth to Fox, having taken him with me to a ball given by Mrs. Fox. "'I am very glad to see you, Mr. Wordsworth, "'though I am not of your faction,' "'was all that Fox said to him, "'meaning that he admired a school of poetry different "'from that to which Wordsworth belonged.'" Fox considered Burnet's style to be perfect. We were once talking of an historian's introducing occasionally the words of other historians into his work, without marking them as quotations. When Fox said, quote, that the style of some of the authors so treated might need a little mending, but that Burnet's required none. One forenoon at his own house, Fox was talking to me very earnestly about Dryden when he suddenly recollected that being in office he ought to make his appearance at the King's Levy. It was so late that Not having time to change his dress, he set off for Buckingham house accoutred as he was. And when somebody remarked to him that his coat was not quite the thing, he replied, no matter. He, that is George III, is so blind that he can't distinguish what I have on. There was a period of his life when Fox used to say that he could not forgive Milton for having occasioned him the trouble of reading through a poem, Paradise Lost, three parts of which were not worth reading. He afterwards, however, estimated it more justly. Milton's prose works he never could endure. He thought so highly of the Isago of Metastasio that he considered it as one of the four most beautiful compositions produced during the century, the other three being Pope's Eloisa to Abelard, Voltaire's Zaire and Gray's Elegy. No-one, said Fox, could be an ill-tempered man who wrote so much nonsense as Swift did. January 1803. A visit to St Anne's. A small low white house on the brow of a hill commanding a semicircular sweep, rich and woody. In the small drawing-room, Sir Joshua Reynolds's girl with the mouse-trap. In the hall, books and statues the library on the first floor, small and unadorned, the books on open shelves. Engraved portraits, principally after Sir Joshua Reynolds, all over the house. In the garden passage, a copy in black marble of the eagle at Strawberry Hill. And a bust of Hippocrates, with a Latin inscription by Lord Holland, found in Italy. In the eating-room, a portrait of Lord Holland sitting, carefully painted by Reynolds, and of Lady Holland, sitting by Ramsay, Several good old pictures. In the garden, a handsome architectural greenhouse and a temple after a design of Lord Newborough, who also designed Kingsgate, and of whose taste he thinks highly, containing busts of Charles J. Fox, Lord Holland, and a son of Lord Bullingbroke, all by Nolikens. The garden, laid out in open and shrubbery walks, Trees breaking the prospect everywhere. The kitchen garden a square not walled and skirted by the walk. In the lower part is something in imitation of the Newnham flower garden. There is a terrace walk thickly planted to a neat farmhouse in which there is a tea room. The chimney piece relieved with a fox. The drawing room prettily furnished with pink silk and panels enclosed with an ebony bead and a frame of blue silk, made of old gowns. Thought, Sidney Biddulph, the best novel of our age, footnote, Memoirs of Sidney Biddulph by Mrs. Sheridan, mother of R. B. Sheridan, she died 1767, Sheridan denied having read it, though the plot of his School for Scandal was borrowed from it. The close of the second part, very excellent used to read Homer through once every year on my asking him which poem had you rather have written the Iliad or the Odyssey he answered I know which I had rather read meaning the Odyssey Euripides was his grand favorite among the Greek poets he fancied that Shakespeare must have met with some translation of Euripides for he could trace resemblances between passages of their dramas for example what Alcestus in her last moment says about her servants is like what the dying Queen Catherine in Henry Eighth says about hers, etc. He considered the Oedipus Colonus as the best play of Sophocles, and he admired greatly his Electra. He did not much like Caesar's commentaries. They appeared to him rather dry and deficient in thought. He said that the letter to Oppius and Balbus, which is very little known, was the piece that did Caesar most honour, and that he had once transcribed it with the intention of sending it to Buonaparte, when the news of the Duc d'Anguin's death made him change his mind. He was a constant reader of Virgil and had been so from a very early period. There is at Holland House a copy of Virgil covered with Fox's manuscript notes written when he was a boy and expressing the most enthusiastic admiration of that poet. Afterwards, calling upon him in stable-yard when he happened to be ill, I found him reading Hippocrates. On that occasion I said I wished that the new administration would put down the east wind by an act of parliament. He replied, smiling, and waking, as it were, from one of his fits of torpor, that they would find it difficult to do that, but that they would do as much good in that as they would in anything else. Bond Street bad and inferior to what the Strand used to be, which has suffered in its shops from Bond Street. Piccadilly on a bright Sunday very fine. Could never believe the streets of London were so short as they are, particularly Bond Street, which is said to be only half a mile long. Thought Gibbon's Acacia walk long and it was short. Footnote: the Acacia Walk in Gibbon's Garden at Lausanne. Very shortly before he died, he complained of great uneasiness in his stomach, and Klein advised him to try the effects of a cup of coffee. It was accordingly ordered, but not being brought so soon as was expected, Mrs. Fox expressed some impatience, upon which Fox said with his usual sweet smile, Remember, my dear, that good coffee Cannot be made in a moment. Lady Holland announced the death of Fox in her own odd manner to those relatives and intimate friends of his who were sitting in a room near his bedchamber and waiting to hear that he had breathed his last. She walked through the room with her apron thrown over her head. How fondly the surviving friends of Fox cherished his memory. Many years after his death, I was at a fête given by the Duke of Devonshire at Chiswick House. Sir Robert Adair and I wandered about the apartments up and down stairs. In which room did Fox expire? asked Adair. I replied, in this very room. Immediately Adair burst into tears with a vehemence of grief such as I hardly ever saw exhibited by a man. End of section 5